Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're in chapter 1 today, and we want to begin our reading in verse 13. We will begin our reading in verse 13. Now, I'll tell you this. You're going to notice sections as we go through the sermon. We have finished the Beatitudes. Now he will spend some time on salt and light. Now, the Beatitudes have to do with our relationship within the kingdom, who we are in the kingdom, and and, and what God praises in the kingdom that the world might ignore. Now you'll deal with salt and light, and that has to do with our relationship with the world. We are in the world, not of the world, but there are certain expectations he has of us as we are a part of this world or in the world. Also, he will talk about the law. I think we'll get there today as well. He wants to make it clear that he did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to do away with the law at all, but he came to fulfill it, and we will talk about what that is. After that, and we'll probably get here next week maybe, but he gives us the section called the Antitheses, and that is six of them. Uh, He switches back and forth all through the sermon. You have eight Beatitudes, you have six Antitheses, and he does that back and forth moving around the number seven all the way through the sermon. But the antithesis, each one of them begins with, you've heard it said of old, but I say to you. You've heard it said this way, but I am telling you something that's different or deeper. And we will get into those, and that has more to do with our relationship with each other. So let's take a look. I'm going to begin reading where we left off last week. We actually covered verse 13, but let's read it together. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he goes on, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does one light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one or sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then a very powerful statement. He says, For I say to you, 
that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think it was 1984 that R.C. Sproul, John Grishner, and author Lindsay came forth with a book called uh, Classical Apologetics. Reading some of J.P. Moreland's stuff, you might not know him, but uh, uh, he led me to this one excerpt from that old classic book, and I want to read it to you. It says, the church is safe from persecution now at the hands of the secularist or the atheist or whoever it might be, because as educated people, we have finished with stake burning and circuses and torture racks. No martyr's blood is really shed anymore in the secular West, so long as the church knows her place and remains quietly at peace on her modern reservations. So let the Christians pray and sing and let them read their Bibles. It says, because the church's extinction will not come by sword or pillory, but by the quiet death of irrelevance. But let the church step off of the reservation. Let her penetrate once more the culture of the day. And the face of secularism will change from a benign smile to a savage snarl. That's a powerful word. You let the church step off of the designated area that the world has for us. You try to take your religion in the voting booth or take your faith in Christ to work or you try to have some sort of effect on the world around you and buddy then that's when everything begins to come apart but as long as the church will just stay in her place I can tell you neither the devil nor the devil's people in this world care if we go to church seven days a week it doesn't matter Because what matters in here, they don't care about. I don't care how beautiful the music was or the sermons or whatever it might be, how many promises we make to God. None of that matters one bit in this world. The world has nothing to fear from any of that. It is when we go out into the world as salt and light and we begin to have an effect on the world around us, that's when that savage snarl will raise its head. And that's when we're told about the separation of church and state. I, I hear, hear that all the time, the separation of, of church and state, and it's really very well, much misunderstood, but... It's been said before, if you really are loving and big on the separation of church and state, you're going to love the rapture. But I would say this, salt and light are measured by how they affect other things. Their distinctiveness. He said, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? And I know we covered some of this last week. But salt gives flavor, it prevents corruption, and you can find a long list of things that 
salt does, but it's only worthwhile if it preserves its distinctiveness. Salt that tastes just like food that you don't notice, that doesn't introduce change in any way whatsoever, you wouldn't buy it because it would be worthless. It would be worthless. Light that has struck a compromise with the darkness. And, and if you have a light, have you ever picked up a light out of that drawer, you know, you have in the kitchen where everything in the world is in there? You don't know where it is. It's the catch-all drawer. You grab a flashlight, and you find out that this flashlight is a secular progressive flashlight because it has blended with the darkness. You couldn't even tell that you turned it on. It's absolutely worthless because when it stops affecting the darkness or when salt no longer affects that which to which it is applied, they are worthless. Jesus Christ says that himself. Now we know that salt really doesn't ever lose its salinity, sodium chloride, but what happens to it, especially when it was mined from the Dead Sea, it would get mixed with other chemicals and that would ruin it and that would render it worthless. And it is interesting, the word, we said it last week, for tasteless, when it becomes tasteless, the word is moreno. We get our word moron from it because the word means sluggish or dull. You no longer have an edge. You're a worthless knife with no edge. It, it, is, it is stupidity. It is silly. It is insipid. It is flat. It is absolutely worth nothing. Now, I can tell you, if you're salt that never offends, never changes anything, never creates a taste that wasn't there before, I can tell you Christ himself says we are moronic, or worthless. Tapel would have been the word Jesus would have used in the Aramaic. He didn't speak he, the Greek. We have it in Aramaic that what he spoke, and now it's given to us in the Greek. But it's the very same meaning. Tapel means moronic, senseless, foolish, dull, a waste of time. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. This goes back to how some in, the, uh, in Judaism believed that salt was actually a sign of wisdom. It could affect things the right way. It could take something that might have been really good, like a, a, a piece of food or meat or something, and, and, or even uh, to preserve something. You know, when I was uh, growing up, mostly a little before my time, that, but uh, if you didn't have a refrigerator, you could preserve meat and, and never, ever refrigerate it. You did it with salt. And a lot of people uh, understand how all of that is done. But the salt has to be good salt or it's absolutely worthless. And he says this, how can it even be made salty again? Boy, that's a stark warning. Because if you ever lose your influence... What a rhetorical question. What a question. How can it ever be made salty again? Our influence is so important. You know, I, I think about one person in particular, and he's, he has passed on now, but I, I just, I have books in my library written by Ravi Zacharias. There's a man that lost 
his influence. I would recommend his books to tons of people. I don't recommend them anymore. Nothing changed about the book. I'm sure his books are full of truth and all of that. But because of what we learned about him at the end of his life, and, and I think of others like Andy Stanley and others right now that that they are beginning to blend a little bit with the environment around them. And the more that that happens, the less influence they're going to have. Doesn't mean their churches won't be full. People like that. But their effectiveness to change someone's life is null and void. Matter of fact, bad salt is a hazard. Jesus says in Luke 14, he says it's useless either for the soil or the manure. It's not even good for the manure pile because when you put that on the garden to make the things grow and to fertilize it, the salt will just kill whatever is there. So once you lose your influence, there is not a place where you're going to fit in and be able to do good. So we should take note that our influence is a precious thing. And it can be lost with one bad decision. We have to remember that. We are to be agents of change. I gave you an example last week of a man that lost his influence in the Old Testament. I'll give you one more. Last week we talked about Lot. I think about another one by the name of Samson. In Judges chapter 16, we read about Samson. He married a Philistine. Now, that it says that that was God's will. His mom and dad did not understand that. But he married a Philistine, and God allowed it so he could get within the Philistine camp and do the work that God had put him on this earth to do. But instead of changing Philistines, the Philistines changed him. And the next thing you know, he's lying in the lap of one who's not his wife, and she gives him a haircut And I can tell you, from then on, he's pretty much done for. He lost his vision. He lost his freedom. He lost his power. And in the end, he lost his life. He lost his life. So I'm telling you, you can't date Philistines and keep your effectiveness. You can't live in two sides and two different worlds and and be effective as a child of God. Jesus is trying to get us to see that. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, this is another agent of influence, and it has to be distinctive as well. As a matter of fact, light can be very, very disruptive. Early in the morning, have you ever had to tell somebody, cut that light off, my goodness. You just, boy, when you go from zero dark 30 to bright lights, man, that can, that can make you squint and make you wince. So light is always disruptive to the dark. And it is never, ever measured by how well, again, that it blends with the darkness. You don't turn on a light and say, hey, man, you could, we got some really cool light bulbs, man. You can barely tell their own. You would never even brag about something like that. That would be worthless. I, I, I may not need them now, but I got me some headlights that makes my son just absolutely uh, angry. <laughs> he hates those bright headlights. His daddy got him some. And people come by, and I know they flash their brights at me, and And I'm kind of like, oh, no, wait, there's more. Because that was on them. Put on some suntan oil, I'll cook you before you get by me. 
I understand I was blind for a big part of my life, okay? I may shadow them down a bit, but I didn't measure or buy those lights because they said, you won't even know they're on. They'll just blend so well, the darkness is going to love them. Get you a set today. The darkness will love it. The darkness always loves it. And because the darkness does love, our people love the darkness. And Jesus said that blending has become a virtue in our world, but it's not a virtue in the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us the world loves the darkness around them. So here's the problem for you and I. Our message is offensive. That doesn't mean we're to be. This is not a call to be boorish or arrogant in any way, shape, or form. We have no cause for that. But I can tell you the gospel is scandalous. And that's a great word for it. Paul will use it as well. But the gospel is a scandal to a lot of people. And let me tell you what that means. This is a cool word because scandalous is a great word that means trigger. And boy, that's a popular word nowadays, is it not? Somebody set my water on the right side of the pulpit today, knowing that I do not have a right hand. I don't know who I have to call to get this straightened out. There could be a lawsuit, okay? All right, I know who did it, young man. But I'm just telling you, I could be triggered by that. They know I don't have a right hand, and, and, and they put the water over there. I guess they just, I don't know. And, man, the next thing you know, they're off singing a Taylor Swift song or something, and, and, and it's just a mess. Trigger. Scandalizo is a word for the little gadget, whatever it may be, in a trap. Not a word for the trap. But in the Greek, it's a word for the trigger and the trap. I've been dying to preach on this verse. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. See, I'm more spiritual than you. I went for it. The word there said for offend is scandalizo. If you've got something in your life that may be as good and as useful to you as your right hand, if it becomes a trigger for you to do bad things or allow bad things in your life, cut it off. As ridiculous as that may sound, the spiritual surgery that you are going to need to do. He said, if your right hand offends you or right eye offends you, man, I'm batting a thousand a day, am I not? If your right eye offends you, he says, pluck it out. What could be more useful than your right eye? And I've had this conversation so many times when people go, uh, what do you mean I need to have my internet cut off if I can't uh, keep a tab on what I'm watching or I can't control what I want to look at? I mean, that may sound ridiculous to you. Or I need to change jobs just because I got a gal at work and we're a little hot on each other. I mean, everything, nothing's happened so far. You mean I need to actually quit my job? And go somewhere else to work. That is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. He says, I don't care if it is something as useful as a right eye or a right hand. Nothing could be more useful than that. He says, but if it is triggering something in your life, you don't need get rid of it. 
So that's our word, scandalon. The gospel also is scandalous. It triggers as well. There are four reasons I'll just give you quickly. One, this gospel is scandalous, and I don't care how sweet and nice and loving and graceful and humbly we present it, our message is going to trigger people. Number one, because it says we are not good enough. Man, you can get 30 days in the electric chair for telling somebody nowadays that you're not good enough. Oh, no, everybody's good enough. Good Lord, no matter what it is, oh, you're good enough. You just, but to tell people no, when it comes to the kingdom of God, you are not now, neither will you ever be. On your own, you will die lost and go to hell. You are never going to clean up your life, turn over enough new leaves, make enough New Year's resolutions. You are never, ever going to be good enough to get yourself into the kingdom of God. Your religion's not good enough. It might be, well, something that, boy, you've always had. You was raised a particular way, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, whatever. It doesn't matter. Your church may mean a lot to you. Your friends at church, your old pastor, all of those kinds of things, a place you got married. All of that might mean a lot to you, but I can tell you there is no religion in the world that will ever get you into the kingdom of God. Another one is you cannot come to salvation through your intellect. This throws a, quite a few people out of the saddle. I have some great friends, really smart, love them to death. We have tons of conversations that are in-depth about science and technology and quantum mechanics and things like that. But when it comes to the gospel, they just cannot wrap their mind around Jesus dying for our sins. They tell me that that's old Canaanite religion where the king throws his son into the fire and burns him to death so the people can be blessed. But I want to tell you, you may not ever arrive at that the gospel intellectually. It just might be a, a jump too far for you. And if it is, I can tell you, the gospel's not going to change. It's just going to trigger you. It will continue to trigger you. And I think last of all and the most triggering is it is exclusive. If you said there were ten ways you could go to heaven when you die, it might not be too bad. But when you tell people that there's not even two, that's when the snarl comes. There is only one. There is only one. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. And that exclusivity is a trigger for the world. They don't like to be told that one religion is better than the other. Some people say, uh, oh, oh, all religions, they're, they're, the, they're the same. They, they, they basically, and, and some will even say, I remember uh, a female theologian, uh, Oprah Winfrey, used to say, that all religions are right. Well, what about the religion that says all the others are wrong? How are we going to sort that one out? All religions cannot be right. All religions can be wrong. But there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is through His Son, Jesus 
Jesus Christ. It's a trigger. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, Paul tells them, but we preach Christ crucified. On a cross, he says, we preach Christ that way. And he says, to the Jews, this is a stumbling block. Want to know what that word is? It's a scandaline. He says, to the Jews, it is a trigger. And to the Gentiles, it is foolishness. He says, to the Jew, it's a trigger because they can't attain it through the law. It's by grace through the work of Christ on the cross. And the Gentiles can't come to it through their own reasoning. You, you remember when Paul in Acts 17 met with the philosophers on Mars Hill. They looked at him and they called him a spermalagos, which is seed picker. And it was a word for a little bird that just goes around pecking seeds. And if a philosopher was just bringing up a bunch of ideas and wasn't tying them together well, they would call him a spermalagos. You were just a seed picker. You're just a bird hitting here and there. And they even looked at Paul and they said, well, let's hear what this seed picker's got to say. Because it didn't make sense to them intellectually. There's no way it could possibly be true. Boy, when you say things like that, you've become God. I hope you can save yourself. You can't. But you're now in charge. You've decided what is truth and what is not. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. That's the only reason we do whatever it is we do. Everything we do is measured or estimated by whether or not it glorifies God. What is the purpose of the church? It is to glorify God. What is the purpose of my life? It is to glorify God. That's why I have been here. I've been put on this earth. So he is telling us, let your light shine before men, not so they will glorify you, but so they will glorify God. Powerful word. Verse 17 He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, that's a great statement, and we've probably heard it quoted quite a few times. But let's take a quick second to understand what he means by law. In the Jewish context, they saw the law kind of four ways, same thing. But one, the Ten Commandments. The Decalogue or the Ten Words it's called, but the Ten Commandments is at the base of it all. And then they have the Torah, or in the Greek the word is Pentateuch, which means five roles, and that's the first five books of the Old Testament. They revered that, and they considered the first five books of the Old Testament as law. And then they would include both the law and the prophets, and you see Jesus doing that here as well. And that basically meant all of Hebrew Scripture, the entire Old Testament. We're kind of doing good so far, but then another law developed. I'm not saying a different kind, but built on the simplicity of Ten Commandments, the Jews came up with what is called the scribal or oral law. And that's what took them from Ten Commandments to six hundred. And 
14 commandments by the time the New Testament was written. And they were just memorized. And the ones who memorized them were the scribes. If you wonder, man, how in the world could the scribes have so much power? How could they be so important? Well, I ask myself sometimes, how can lawyers be so important? And if you're a lawyer and you're here today, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And, and don't take it the wrong way. But I can tell you, it's the same situation we have today. Nobody knows what to do. You get a speeding ticket, man alive, there's 29 statutes and there's three or four other things that, that you need to do. But then before you do that, you need to go over here and do something else. And you're going to need this form and you're going to need this, that, and the other. And man alive, I'm telling you. And the only ones who really know what you need to do are the lawyers. Now, we're stupid enough in this country that we elected them to make the laws. How dumb was that? You think any of these crazy laws are going to go away? Nope. You'll need me for that. You couldn't understand that. I don't even understand it. I just know how to present it to a judge. Well, the scribes were the same way. They were the only ones who knew these things. They were the only ones who memorized that if you are mortally, or or not mortally, but if you are seriously wounded on the Sabbath, that someone could come and give you aid, physical aid, on the Sabbath to try to keep you alive. But they could not do anything to your wound that would improve it. Because if it improved any, that was considered work, and that would be a violation of the Sabbath. That's why in that day they were constantly, you see it in the New Testament, they were dialing all nines every time you turned around. Because somebody's got to figure this out. How in the world are we going to know? If you've already, and they had dilemmas, we laughed about them before. If you put the saddle on your donkey in the end of the Sabbath day, which was sundown on a Friday, if it gets here, you can't take that saddle off that donkey. But then it's worse than that. If you leave the saddle on the donkey, then you're not working, but your donkey's working, and you're still guilty. So that's when you say, honey, dial uh Big Shoster and Howard, whatever all those uh, law firms are, you got We got to figure this out. And they had all kind of formulas, and they had all kinds of uh, resolutions. Finally, somewhere around the third century A.D., they decided to write all of these crazy laws down, and it came out in a book called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was about eight hundred pages, if it were written in English. And then it had to be explained, of course. So then they came out with the Talmud. They had the Jerusalem Talmud, which would help you kind of figure it out. It was 12 volumes long. And then they had what they called the Babylonian Talmud, which was to explain the Mishnah, which was to explain the oral law. And it was 80 volumes long. Man, imagine being one of those door-to-door salesmen selling copies of the Babylonian Talmud. Eighty volumes. It had gotten so out of hand. Matter of fact, 
when Jesus' disciples on the Sabbath one day walked through a grain field, they broke some of the grain and began to eat it. And the scribes asked, why do your disciples break the law? And boy, Jesus told them something awesome. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And if you got any other questions, I just added that. Verse 28, the very next verse, he says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That law, I don't submit to it. It submits to me. Because it is not Lord of me. I am Lord of it. Now go back to the first verse we read. He said this was a gift for you. The Sabbath was a gift from God so that they could rest and then you could give that gift to your servants, which was another great blessing. And you would give that gift to your animals when they had a day of rest. And then uh, environmentalists ought to like this. You also had a, a Sabbath year where you would let the crops uh, rest for a period of time. So uh, the Sabbath was a gift to humankind. But they had turned it into a, a, a harsh whip to the back of every body. And nowadays, if you're wondering, well, why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, there's a great book out called Hebrews. You ought to grab you a copy sometime. Hebrews chapter 4, you ought to read the whole chapter, but just verse 9 and 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is. He says in verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. Who is the, his rest? That is Jesus Christ. And the rest that was promised on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, we find in our relationship with Jesus Christ in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I love Matthew 11. Verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus goes on to tell us, he said, I didn't come to abolish, but I came to fulfill everything that the law was intended to do. Christ says, it is fulfilled in me. It's fulfilled in Christ. The law and the prophets, he said, I didn't come to abolish any of them, but I came to fulfill everything that's in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Moses represented the law in the Old Testament. Elijah represented the prophets in the Old Testament. And Jesus, being who he was, which is God, was able to schedule a meeting with Moses and Elijah in the New Testament. Now, how cool is that? I met with them. And we talked. Man, I want to tell you, I love Romans 10, 4. I think that's where 10, 4 came from, I, I, I think. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We could never keep the law. As a matter of fact, I will even say this to you, and I'm skipping a lot of stuff because I want to 
get to this and close. But when you read about the intricate demands of the law, when you read the book of Leviticus and you see things, oh, that's just ridiculous, and there's just no way anybody could keep that, and why is that even important? The law is a written account of what it takes to be righteous before God. Every detail matters. You can't remember them all. When it says that a lamb has to be spotless and perfect, there are no spotless lambs. If you looked at them close enough, I promise you with my new eye, I could probably find a spot. I'm just saying to you that we could never keep it. It, it, it tells us that. The law and this intricate demands of the sacrificial a system, it stipulated perfection, and, and we are never, ever going to be able to attain that. That is why we have a need for Christ. That's why I have to put my faith and trust in Him. But the law helps me to see just how desperately I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Man. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. I will fulfill every bit of it. God's not changed his mind about good and evil. Evil is still evil. Good still good. I'm not a kindler, gentler version of the Old Testament God. I am the one who created the entire universe, but I am here because of the demands of the law that you could not keep. I am keeping them, and if you put your faith and trust in me, then you can find salvation and Sabbath rest and all of the other benefits of the law of God. Man, powerful, powerful truth. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice he said, whoever keeps and teaches. That's a, that's, that's a notable word order. Keeps and teaches. Man, I can't keep them. I can't keep them. You know, when we say preachers ought to practice what they preach, I know we talked about this a little last week, but when we say preachers ought to practice what they preach, do you know how short our sermons would be if we could only preach on the stuff that we were good at? And some of you might be going, well, let's give that a try. We'll be at Mi Pueblitos before the crowd hits. You would be. But I can tell you it's not just preachers that are hypocrites. Our pews are full of people who sing songs that they don't mean. People who pretend that they give when you know you don't. People who pretend that they support the church financially and with their time. See, hypocrites can be in the pulpit and they can be in the pews as well, friend. I can just tell you, trying to do it on our own is never, ever going to work. Well, last verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's a question that I've been trying to get to all sermon long. How righteous 
must one be to enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, I think it's according to where you ask that. If you're brave enough, I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to dare you to do it because it, it, it caused more controversy than you could think. But if you put that on Facebook, how righteous do you have to be to enter heaven? Man, you hear answers like, well, none of us are righteous. And I'll tell you right now, God knows we're not perfect. God, God's not expecting perfection. You'd hear that in a heartbeat, would you not? But God is expecting perfection. And He is expecting righteousness. He says here, unless yours exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now maybe you're thinking, well, if, I just, if all i got to do is outlive a lawyer, then I probably can do that. But He is talking about people who kept the law down to the jot and tittle and got completely ridiculous about it. If doing and striving and working and accomplishment and achievement and effort and determination and all of that could get it done, the Pharisees could have, could have, have that eternal life. But none of that works. So let me ask you again, how righteous do you have to be to get into the kingdom of God? And the answer to that is you have to be 100% completely righteous. Sure do. That's why we need Jesus. Because there's nobody in here 100% righteous without Him. We have to let His righteousness as a gift of grace. We have to receive that from God. Paul tells us all about that throughout the book of Romans. It's not about doing. And it's not about not doing either, by the way. Because here's what happens. Once you receive that gift from God, you don't have to be prodded to serve Him and to love Him. That's legalism that counted how many days you missed at church. That's legalism that counted to see how much money you put in the plate. It's not about all of that. But it's also not about, well, I'm saved, I'm going home. No. It's about serving a God that you love because He first loved you. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. That's how we are deemed 100% righteous. And that is what's required. Every religion in the world, it seems, that they have that door, that thing that you have to do to get to wherever it is you're going, nirvana or the blessed promised land or whatever it might be that you're thinking about in whatever religion it might be. The Christianity, the door, is Jesus Christ, according to John 10. He says, I am the door of the sheepfold. It's not about working hard. It's not about attaining it ourselves. And it's also, I have to say this, it's also not about, well, we don't live by the law anymore. We failed. We failed miserably 
the law, the purpose of the law is to help us to see just how miserable of a failure we were and how badly we needed Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus was the one that had to be pleased, so God comes out of heaven, lives on this earth, and He dies for us, for our sinfulness, to satisfy His own wrath against our sinfulness so we could have a relationship with Him. If you can say no to that, you're a fool. Our world is full of them. Man, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe you're sitting here today and you know in your heart that never really gotten serious about that. Maybe you've been a church member somewhere all your life or whatever. I, I don't know. Maybe you're one of those you try to do your best. In our world, you get points for that. and People embrace that idea. Nobody's perfect. We just keep trying. Hopefully one day. Maybe you're one of those that you're thinking that when I die, God's going to weigh all the good and all the bad in the scales. And if the good outweighs the bad, then I get to go to heaven. That's Islam. That's Islam. Matter of fact, if you want to know why Islam is so dangerous, you can skip that whole process if you take the life of the infidel during jihad. If you've ever wondered what would drive people to fly planes in the building knowing they're going to kill themselves, you don't have to worry about does the good outweigh the bad. Die in jihad and you're guaranteed to go and be with Allah. How foolish. So maybe you're here today, and I don't know, I doubt you're a Muslim. You just could be a good old Methodist or Baptist or Presbyterian, that you're just working hard and trying to make it happen, praying when you can, making it to church if, if every chance you get, trying to treat others the way you want to be treated, hoping for the best. Man, take your hope out of you. Put it in Jesus Christ. Maybe right now just tell him, God, I want to put my faith and trust in you. I want my confidence for my eternity to be in your hands, God. I want your perfection, your fulfillment of every little jot and tittle of the law. I want it to count on my behalf, God. I receive it right now as a gift of your grace, God. Lord, we come to you today thanking you for that gift. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help anyone here who's trying to sort through all of that. Help them to realize, God, today we heard it from you. From you. We heard you say these things, God. This is you preaching. Lord, it would be inspired if it were Paul or Peter or John, but it's not. It's you. You are telling us this. That the law cannot be ignored. Can't be forgotten. It has to be fulfilled, and if we try on our own, it's impossible. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for dying for us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. And I pray you'd help us to understand that. And help us, Lord, once we do, to be the salt and light in this world, God. Lord, we know it won't make the world love us because they hated you. They're going to hate us. We understand that. But, Lord, I pray that we would stop trying to blend. That we would stop trying to be innocuous and peaceful. But that we would be effective, God. A light that could not be ignored. A taste that would never be forgotten, God. Help us to be that in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.